Welcome to Courage and Spice. This is the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'll share evidence-based resources and teach you proven coaching tools to help you transcend your self-doubt. I'm Sass Petherick, a master coach and founder of the Self-Belief Coaching Academy. I'm so glad you're here. Let's do this. Hello lovely humans, really excited to chat to you today about this idea that is brewing for me. I think it might become a bit of a coaching concept that I teach, but I just wanted to share where I'm at with it and what's going on that has created this concept and what I think might be helpful for you to know so you can start playing with it before it's perfect, right? Before it's well practiced and developed. So The title of this episode is that every story has three narratives and I want to talk a bit more about what that means to me and how I think it can be an incredibly helpful self-reflection approach. So if you're trying to figure out what's happening for you in an area of your life that feels really unsatisfying or confusing, I think this approach can really help. So I want to talk to you a little bit about why I've come up with this approach and then we'll get into it. So if you follow me on uh, Instagram, I'm at sasspetherick on there. If we're not connected, let's do that. But you might know that uh, for the last few months, I've been engaged in a new learning experience for myself. I'm involved in training to be a coach supervisor. So I'm doing a diploma in supervision and it is one of the most intense experiences I've ever been in. There's only eight people in the class, so there's nowhere to hide. We have three hours of class time together, so every Friday morning we spend three hours together, plus we have practice pods, so we are in a triad of coaches that we are trainee supervisors and we are practicing together. Plus we need to be in supervision for our own coaching work We have supervision clients and we have a supervisor for our own supervision. So it's intense. It's not for the faint hearted. It's a kind of jump in and see what happens type experience. And for those of you who maybe aren't sure what I'm talking about, coach supervision is for for coaches to reflect on their practice. So it's this lovely mix of support and challenge And in a supervision session, you talk about individual clients and where you might be feeling challenged or not sure about how to help them. Uh, We talk about the thornier aspects of just supporting another human. And there's ethical dilemmas that come up, as well as what's really working. Like, how is your coaching practice feeling really good to you? We also talk about the systems and the relationships that the coach and the client are each within and the ones we all share. And we talk about other stuff that's a little bit more tricky to get a handle on until you experience it. Things like self-delusion and unconscious bias, where we get enmeshed with a client. And things like our beliefs about the right way to do this work and what happens to us as practitioners when we're just sitting across from this warm breathing complex human like what do you say that will really help them but not rescue them what do you say to maintain the client's sovereignty what happens when the session falls really flat what happens when it goes into territory that you're uncomfortable with 
maybe because of your level of coaching experience or because it's something that you're dealing with in your own life and it feels a bit entangled with the experience of the client. So I've been in trauma-informed supervision for about eight years and I honestly, I don't know how coaches practice without supervision. I think it's such an incredibly valuable and important aspect of this work. But it's not common for coaches to be in supervision. It's still a little bit of a specialism. I recommend for every coach that works with me that they get themselves a supervisor. So I really value supervision. I have a big old story about how important it is. And when I first joined this class, I started off feeling really intimidated by the experience of my classmates. I think I'm probably the least experienced of everybody. And when I'm in that kind of group, I have a couple of things happen. One is that I want to ace the class and be super exceptional. So I can feel that kind of energy rising in me. I also want to almost separate from the rest of the class. Like it's like I poo-poo it because I don't want to love it in case I'm not accepted, right? So there's all these protective mechanisms that are going on, which is so normal, right? And for anyone who's been in any kind of group process, you'll know that this happens all the time. So we're a couple of months in now and it is proving to be humbling and stretchy and being on the supervisor side of the table is so, so different to being a coach receiving supervision. But I'm I'm really excited. Um, we're having so much constructive feedback, constructive feedback in all of this program. So I'm basically swimming in a pool of my own uncertainty and having people point out and criticize what's going on. So I think this is what is meant by a kind of ego death, right? Where you just kind of go, I don't know anything. I don't know who I am anymore. And there's something so sort of juicy and interesting about that, that it feels so edgy and stretchy. I'm I'm genuinely loving it. So I'm also doing a lot of reading and putting a lot of jigsaw pieces together around how do I want to show up as a supervisor? What is the nature and flavor of my approach to this work? And for those of you who maybe have have worked with me in the past or you are kind of familiar with my approach to coaching, you'll know that I love developmental approaches to, to this work. And developmental psychology is a big old body of work that tries to give us a, a framework to understand adulthood, to understand the developmental stages that we all go through. It's very non-directional. So I'm not a massive fan of goals in coaching. I just don't think that they're that important. But I think they can be really useful to demonstrate other things, like you know, re- feeling resourced as a human. I think goals can be a great way of sort of surfacing and bubbling up things like self-doubt. So my coaching approach tends to be very much about meaning making, about stories. And so I've been thinking a lot about stories and how I could work as a supervisor and use that developmental approach. So this gives you a lot of context to this idea that every story we tell has three narratives. So this kind of dropped into me in the shower. Have you ever had that happen? It's so fascinating to me how that happens. 
couple of weeks ago, I was having a shower and this idea came to me that the layers of a story and I've just been playing with it and I'm weaving it into my work and I thought you might enjoy it. So the best way into this is just to think about a story that you tell other people about you. So it might be as simple as the details you choose to share when you first meet someone. So perhaps a new person joins your team at work and you're having a coffee on Zoom. What do you decide to tell them about yourself? And it might be an anecdote that you found yourself retelling to a few different people. Or it might just be a specific instance that feels important to you right now and you find yourself mulling it over. So it's a story you're kind of telling yourself. So just remember the last time you told that story, like bring that into your mind. And this is your first narrative. It's about your experience. It's the let me tell you what happened narrative or the let me tell you who I am narrative. So it's context. It's it's the characters, the things that we choose to focus on. And in telling your experience, in that narrative, we can do quite sneaky things, right? We omit some details. We gloss over other things. We might add in some humor or drama, depending on our audience and the impression we want to give them. Like, do I want to be seen as self-effacing or do I warrant sympathy in this scenario? It's often not a conscious kind of intention that we have when we are telling our first narrative, our experience narrative. And as I'm sharing this, I'm thinking about the story I've told a few times. I don't think on the podcast, but the story of my first marriage ending and how my husband left me a note (laughs) that he needed a break, cleared out his wardrobe while I was in the bath. And it was shocking and heartbreaking and life-changing. And I've learned to tell that story very well. I can add in the details that at the time I was in the bath, I was reading The Amber Spyglass, and if only Philip Pullman wasn't such a great writer, I might still be with this guy. You know, that I heard the door go and I thought, oh, great, he's gone to get some milk. He didn't contact me for days and he eventually he told me he was staying with a friend from work and how I actually found out the truth from our best man, the best man at our wedding, who was based in New Zealand, who eventually emailed me to kind of put me out of my misery and explained that he'd moved in with Kim, the Canadian stick insect. And, you know, as you can hear me telling this story, I bet we all think, He's a bit of a dick now, right? So we can do the sneaky thing where we enroll the audience in our experience narrative, right? We're like, oh, get on my side. Let me tell you the story and I'll get you on my side. You see this a lot on social media, but we can do this with our friends and our colleagues. We can decide who we like, who we don't like, who's good, who's bad. We want reassurance when something distressing happens that we've still got our people, Right? And sometimes we want to test a person to see if they could become our people. So this is why we tell the first narrative, that experience narrative, and the way we do. And lots of us will stop there. Maybe because the details are giving us what we want. We get the feedback that we're maybe unconsciously looking for. And sometimes we worry that maybe peeling back another layer could reveal something about us that feels uncomfortable. But if you are willing to keep going, underneath the experience narrative, there's another layer. 
And I see this as the meaning narrative, right? It's about what you made that experience mean about you, about other people, about how the world works. So if you return to your story and think about the conclusions you draw about your experience. So it might be something like, I don't finish things. People shouldn't lie. People leave. The Tories are bad and wrong. Often what happens with these meaning narratives is that some of our core protective beliefs get reinforced. Right. So for me, the experience of a key relationship ending in such an unexpected way left me believing that ultimately I'm on my own. Here's more evidence that people let you down. In the end, I can only rely on me. All the oldest daughters out there, how are we doing? <laughs> right? Us self-reliant types, very highly correlated to eldest daughters. So it's interesting, isn't it, that that meaning making can just be a reinforcing of protective beliefs. And sometimes that can bring up emotion that's quite hard to be with, or it just feels crunchy. And so we just kind of feel like, oh, well, that's just facts, isn't it? So just notice your meaning making. If you are willing, there is also a third layer, this third narrative, which I'm calling the expansion narrative. And most of us don't really get there because why would we if meaning making can feel like, well, this is facts, right? I never finish things, story over. Of course, people shouldn't lie, end of, right? Tories are evil. There's no exceptions, that end. And I am on my own again. What else is there to talk about? Right? But when we get into reflective practice of some sort, we get to unearth an expanded narrative. And this is really the aim of supervision. It's why this, this process has elicited this idea for me. In supervision, what we're trying to do is look at a bigger perspective, to ask ourselves the question, what else could be true? And I think that's the question to ask yourself if you want to get into an expanded narrative. Because the willingness to ask that question takes real courage, I think. It invites us into a place where we're maybe willing to question or even let go of some of our protective beliefs. It requires us to be open to being wrong about what we think is true about ourselves or other people or the world. We get to question our own sense of what we know, our own epistemology. And we can end up seeing that what we think we know is full of holes. So asking what else could be true invites in complexity and also possibility. If we allow ourselves to really sit with that question, we can start to see that the meaning making we've drawn is specific to that story. It may not be a universal truth. So this idea that, well, I don't finish things, you might remember what else could be true. Well, actually, I did finish that one thing that really mattered to me and I'm super proud of. And so how do I hold both of those things together? Right. You, you may find yourself agreeing with a human being who, through a myriad of circumstances, found that they identify with conservative values and politics. They just made sense to them. And you like that person. Maybe all Tories are not evil. And maybe you start to remember a time 
when you lied. And so there is then this disruption in the person who lied to you, you can't be with. You start to see that with a little more compassion, a little more empathy. So just to carry my story through, I could see that my ex-husband's leaving in the way that he did was, yes, cowardly and dickish behavior. But I can also see how emotionally immature we both were at the time. We were babies trying to navigate who we were becoming. And in the year preceding the end of our relationship, my mum had died suddenly. So I was in the midst of the most profound grief and I pushed him away constantly. And neither of us were equipped to really navigate that. So now I can also see with time and perspective and all of that good stuff, I'm so grateful our relationship ended. And I'm actually grateful that it ended suddenly. There was no protracted figuring it out. It just was very quick, very concise, very clear. And I could get on with healing and figuring out what my next step was going to be. But I can totally see my part in it. And I can hold it was a hurtful, disrespectful way to end. So asking what else could be true is a way to broaden the narrative. The story gets thicker, as we say in narrative therapy. So often when we're telling our story in that experience narrative, and sometimes even in our meaning-making narrative, what we end up with is a story that is quite thin. But when we thicken it up, we can see that There's never just one story. We're really complex and our lives are filled with layers of healing and growth as well as those of other people's. So this third narrative invites in some disruption to our self-concept. And I've had something of that over the last few months and it's humbling and stretchy and some new possibility is growing out of that. So I would invite you to play with the three layers of any story that is causing you distress or discomfort. See what else could be true for you. Hey, if you're ready to explore more about your self-doubt, I want to invite you to take the Self-Doubt Archetypes Quiz. It's totally free and you'll uncover your particular flavor of self-doubt. It turns out self-doubt is not this amorphous cloud of woe. There are 12 different types of self-doubt and finding out yours is the first step to getting a handle on it. Just head over to www.sasspetherick.com backslash archetype for all the details.